millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to The Lycanography the podcast that codifies the canon of films from one of the world's greatest animation studios, Laika. I'm Michael Leader. And I'm Steph Watts, and we've seen a lot of them. And I'm Jake Cunningham, and I'm dying to talk about them. So join us on our quest into the glorious world of Laika. Welcome back, friends. There's been a great schism in the church that is... (laughs) Ghibli attack. Up until now, we've had the selectionary following the career of Henry Selleck, and now he's parting ways with the studio, like a studios, and we're going to be following them, their films. This is what you know, this is like. Christianity. This is like Catholicism versus Protestantism. <laughs> Has your world been rocked, Jake? Yes, it certainly has. I'm I'm now thinking what on earth the reformation of this podcast is going to be. Um but yeah, it's uh it's it's fascinating to go on this journey and it make, it has made me think like down down the line with the podcast, what other what other bold adventures can we go on where we are no we're no longer bound to a single filmmaker or a single studio. We can um we can go off grid, as it were. Um but yeah, very, very excited to be jumping in to the lycanography even though i suppose we kind of already had that's why we had to do it they they are so entwined um but with a new henry Selleck film coming later this year which of course we we will revisit this series down the line it'd be amazing to see how much the paths of Selleck and Lyca diverted at this point as well so when we do get a new Lyca stop-motion film and a new Henry Selleck stop-motion film without them being involved, how will one feel like the other or not? Will mm-hmm. something feel missing? Will something feel more interesting? We're almost at the stage, I think, will this year be the year where where the majority of our previous, previous miniseries um, focuses have a new film out? Mm. We'll have a new... Um, cartoon saloon film in the mix as well as a new Selleck, a new Leica. I love this idea, Jake. You're tempting me now. I love um, a series of uh, sort of 
rock editorial drawings called the Rock Family Tree um, series, which an artist, I believe, called Peter Frame put out over many, many years, where he would chart where a band was formed and they split off and formed other bands and then come together and you'll have Fairport Convention uh, version number 20, who are still touring today, um, for example. So we sh- you're, you're tempting me now to do a mini-series like that, which is almost like a family tree where it's just splintering off in many directions. But for now, let's stick with just the two branches of Selick <laughs> and Leica. Um, Steph, are you still on firm ground here? You were you were there back in the day with Nightmare Before Christmas and the screaming doorbell. Is Leica firm ground for you or new territory? Um, well, once again, in this miniseries, I've lied because I have not seen a lot of them. I've never seen Paranorman. Um, so this is new ground for me. Um, but very very pleasant experience so i'm excited to talk about it so yes it's getting spooky here in fact actually we're recording this in (laughs) summer this film came out in summer even though it's a very autumnal spooky film so um (laughs) let's pretend there's some halloween vibes going on as we talk about paranorman but first steph please cue us up with some synopsis Norman Babcock never asked to see the ghosts of dead people in his daily life, but his strange inherited talent is now the only thing standing between the cursed town of Blythe Hollow and an all-out zombie apocalypse. Steph, I've got to say, if, if you ever become like a scout leader or something you've got a a great voice for doing the campfire ghost story like the somberness to norman babcock never asked to see dead people <laughs> the the Leica and selic synopsis are really lending themselves to that kind of campfire ghost story vibe aren't they <laughs> definitely maybe in if i have a career change that's where i'll be yeah. uh, a summer camp reading ghost stories but, but michael what's the uh gathered round the summer campfire. <laughs> Tell us some context for Paranorman. We'll be here right until the embers die down for context, <laughs> as always. So last week, where did we land? Okay, Coraline, big hit, critical success. I think for Focus Features, the distributor, it was their biggest hit that wasn't Brokeback Mountain. So a, a really um, unlikely uh, success for a stop-motion film. Henry Selick was finally on top Oscar nominee, award winner, all sorts. Where did he go next? Well, the sad thing is, we know this from our present day perspective, he uh, didn't finish or release a new film for over a decade after Coraline. Um, The film that will finally break that drought, Wendell the Wild, as Jake said, will be out later this year. Um, But it it was announced that Selick was leaving Leica in October 2009, so when the film was still on the awards circuit and apparently Selleck's contract expired and they just couldn't negotiate a, a satisfactory renewal so off he went and um, this is, as we said this is where the paths diverge the selectionary and the iconography part ways um, Selleck goes on and he forms a new company called Cinderbiter Productions um, and signs a deal with Disney and Pixar to develop stop motion pi- uh, features um, that might be news to most people listening 
and that is because you know, nothing actually came of that, sadly. But we'll talk more detail about that Disney and Pixar period of Selleck's career uh, later in the miniseries when we when we wrap up. So we'll bid farewell, a fond farewell to Henry Selleck, just for now, because we'll focus our attentions on Leica Studios. So while Coraline was nearing the end of production, Leica unveiled their slate of development projects and that included an adaptation of Alan Snow's kids' book series Here Be Monsters. More on that next week, that becomes Box Trolls. But it also featured an original idea they were working on called Paranorman. The original plan was for them to have like a feature a year, which is incredibly ambitious for a stop-motion studio. <laughs> um, I think in the end now this kicks off like a t- film every two-year kind of routine for them, which is still, if you think about the gaps between Nightmare Before Christmas... James the Giant Peach and Coraline, that's still incredibly industrious. Travis Knight is back. He's producing, serving as lead animator, as well as being the sort of head honcho of the studio. Um, we're talking a similar scale of production here you know, in terms of the massive warehouse they're working in, the number of sets, the kind of 300, 400 craftspeople involved. But there were some key new additions. And the big innovation this time around is um, they have colour, 3D printers. So we talked last time about how 3D printers helped really revolutionise the process of um, creating these uh, the sets, the props, the puppets. But now it cuts down not just hours and hours and hours of hand sculpting, but hours and hours and hours of hand painting on top of that. Um, this is where we get ridiculous and we talk about massive numbers. So that means that the lead character, Norman, for example, had apparently 8,800 faces to choose from um, with 1.5 million different possible expressions because each face is made up of 78 individual pieces. So let's see if you can count through all 1.5 million of those expressions frame by frame in this film. To put that into context, so 1.5 million expressions for Norman 300,000 for Coraline and Jack Skellington only had a mere 800 but then he didn't have eyes so or skin (laughs) or nose and and this has kind of been popularized now and this is within stop motion this is becoming so much of the norm with like Wes Anderson using 3d printing with his and there was the Charlie Kaufman um film mm-hmm. Anna Melissa which made a big big fuss out of 3D printed and kind of made a like an uncanniness out of the 3D printing of it as well. Yes, yeah, so, and this is something maybe we'll talk about this in the review section. It's where the technology so uh, really starts to make stop motion really advanced mm. in a way that we'd never seen it before. Henry Selick um I think all the way back on our Nightmare Before Christmas episode, he said he wanted to use the most advanced camera technology to enliven something that was very old technology, which is create handcrafting puppets. Um, and now, actually, the, the technology to create the puppets is just as advanced as the cameras and everything else they're using. And I suppose as we go on through Leica, as they're making these um, these big movies, where we should ask whether this still feels like what stop motion mm-hmm. was earlier in the miniseries and whether this is being pushed more towards um, maybe what we see elsewhere in animation. Um, the directing duties for Paranorman fall to two people, um, both veterans from other areas of animation, two British blokes. There's Chris Butler, 
who came up with the idea and he wrote the screenplay um, as well as co-directing. He was the storyboard supervisor and I think an uncredited head of story type role for um, Coraline. Uh, but before that, he had storyboard credits on the likes of Corpse Bride, Tarzan 2, the straight-to-video film, the Tigger movie, the Mr. Bean animated series in the 90s. Um, remember his name, because we're going to hear more from him throughout this miniseries, because he becomes one of the key Leica creatives. Um, Chris Butler was making his directorial debut, but he was paired with Sam Fell, who was more of a veteran. He'd been working with Arden Animations throughout the 1990s on lots of shorts, um, he then developed and directed uh, Ardman's CG feature, Flushed Away, that came out in 2006. Um, he came up with the idea for that film, and Ardman um, liked to just sort of field ideas from anyone around the studio, and so they developed that. So he really rose through the ranks there. He also directed um, or co-directed the CG film Tales of Despero, uh, which came out in 2008. So he's sort of you know, got a good couple of credits under his uh, under his belt, both in CG rather than stop motion, but had worked a lot in that before then. This film had a much starrier cast of Hollywood voices, uh, like Anna Kendrick, Casey Affleck, John Goodman, Christopher Mintz-Plass, uh, Leslie Mann, um, Cody Smith-McPhee in the lead role as Norman. Um, amazing, that's, that's an amazing career arc for him from Child Star <laughs> to The Power of the Dog last year. Um, but this film, Paranorman, it was very much envisioned as a zombie movie for kids. At least initially, that's what the development pitch was. Um, and it was continuing on from the spooky, eerie vibe of Coraline. But when we on that episode, we talked about how there was this sort of pressure from various quarters, make it more scary, make it less scary, make it more commercial. And this one definitely has a more commercial leaning by design. Um, and it captures, I think, the dual purpose at the heart of the studio at this point, and maybe it goes to define the studio afterwards. There's a quote that sticks out for me in all the reading I've done from um, the piece that was reporting on that development slate in 2008, and it's from Fiona Kenshol, who was the VP in charge of acquisitions and development, and she said, we're to the left of Pixar and to the right of Nightmare Before Christmas. So they're really trying to pitch it both ways as mm -hmm. being... I suppose, what does Pixar mean at this point? It's um, maybe a little bit of up, I suppose, but then Toy Story, Monsters, Inc., but then Nightmare Before Christmas is still this extreme, will never go as extreme as Nightmare Before Christmas. And then when Paranorman actually came out, Travis Knight said something that I think also captured this duality. Um, he said that so he thought that the film closely mirrored the sensibility of the many artists at the studio he said we are the outcasts we are the misfits and everyone here has an extraordinary gift like norman does but he also then said in the same interview we always want to grow in every way possible we fully expect that paranorman will be a bigger more commercially successful film than Coraline." so this mixture of like artistry spooky kid weird kid artistry but also commercial ambition um, the film cost $60 million, so similar budget level to Coraline. Um, it was released in the States, as I said, August 2012, so this is actually a 10th anniversary episode for Paranorman. Um, and it makes just over $100 million, so a really nice amount, but just falls short of Coraline. 
and it fell short of uh, Travis Knight's expectations as well at the box office at least but it was a really well received film um, by the critics and like Coraline it was nominated for best animated feature at the Oscars so that leads us to quiz time any guesses for what it was up against 2012 well I guess it came out 2012 so this is uh, animated feature Oscars 2013 uh 2012 so uh, a a couple of tips for you pixar won that year uh what what was pixar making in 2012 um toy story 3 is 2010 and then after toy story 3 is what was there like a zootropolis in there or it's, it's a bit it, early a bit for that. Well, it? it's 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 definitely yeah. It's not a franchise one. What do you have to be if you're watching all these scary films? Oh, is it Brave? <laughs> yeah, the film, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I thought Brave was before Toy Story three for some reason. Oh, so right, Brave okay. one, um, a film by a, a director we've had on this podcast actually, um, but we've not covered this studio's films yet. Stop motion. Well, is it stop motion again? A director who's been on this podcast who films we haven't covered. Now that is a riddle. <laughs> I've mentioned the studio barely three or four minutes ago. And it's stop motion, but not stop well, motion. I think this is, oh, this is it's the, Aardman. Um, returning to stop motion. Yeah. For a very long title. Can you get the whole title, Jake? Of, a, of an Aardman film from 2000. Oh, oh the, the pirates in an adventure with scientists. <laughs> Um, and then returning so there's another Disney movie from around this period oh dear lots of video game references Wreck-It Ralph Wreck-It Ralph and the final one is um, the spectre the ghost um, (laughs) at at the banquet of this podcast Tim Burton's (laughs) (laughs) Tim Burton's film of that time Frank and Weenie Frank and Weenie yeah so what a weird category. That's a weird collection of films. Um, and yeah, Brave won. I feel like Brave from Pixar is probably... This is, this is better than Brave. Until that sort of um, the sequel period, that felt like the, 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 the Pixar film that didn't exist. Have you not encountered the good dinosaur, Michael? He's good. Oh, of course. Sorry, that's the Pixar film that doesn't exist that I've forgotten existed. Yeah. <laughs> but that's by the by. One day we'll do our Pixar uh series will we we'll see oh he said um, it now for now (laughs) can't take it back (laughs) for now we've got to get back to the lycanography and we've got to talk about paranorman in the review section jake and steph over to you hey i'm ryan reynolds recently i asked mint mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation they said yes and then when i asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts they said what the f*** are you talking about you insane hollywood ass so to recap we're cutting the price of mint unlimited from 30 dollars a month to just 15 dollars a month give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch 45 dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees promote for new customers for limited time unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows full terms at mintmobile.com hey it's danny pellegrino from everything iconic ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. I suppose the big prompt for this uh, post-schism iconography episode is this is having talked about Coraline where it's Henry Selleck with the son of a billionaire and his studio allowed to make the film he always you know he always dreamed of making this is like a working without Henry Selleck so what, what, how, yeah let's tackle that then <laughs> so Jake what strikes you here about Paranorman this is like it without Selleck yeah I think it's interesting that, that they are kind of talking about their commercial goals um and it's funny that like by becoming more commercial, they become less commercial. Um, and it's it's nice to think that people really came out in their droves to watch Coraline. Because um, I, I don't think this film is as interesting as Coraline or as good as Coraline. And that is because it wants to be more of a mainstream film. Um, and I, I wonder if they kind of banked on there being a, as as you mentioned, a zombie film for kids that, the crowd of kids that would be excited about that is uh, perhaps not as big as maybe they hoped. Um, I I think the film is really well crafted. Um, from like it's, it's visuals are lovely, it's music's lovely. I think the story is just fine. I don't think it gets to as many intriguing depths as Coraline does, or as Selleck is interested in as well. Like this is pretty straightforward stuff. Like the emotional journey isn't really that complicated. It doesn't exist in too many grey areas. Um, but the thing that it does have going, which I found really refreshing compared to what's come before, um, and I won't say this like obviously we have to we have to admit to Monkey Bones' existence, um, but this film is funny, and it tries it is it's interested in making jokes and gags, and there's a lot of visual humour to it monkey bone attempts to do that and fails but like um this this film is kind of breezes along on a re, on a kind of yeah a lot of highs of humor which uh which i was happy to uh happy to encounter i wonder if that's where they're seeing this more commercially viable element to the film because i think it definitely fits in with that kind of aimed at aimed at kind of children element where you know you have like a lot of pixar films are taking you on a journey but they are like stuffed with gags at the same time um and i feel like this is maybe more commercial in that aspect that 
there are a lot of kind of visual jokes and a lot of like jokes chucked into the script um but I think like yeah world wise and story wise I wouldn't necessarily think that this is the film that's gonna kind of rule over the summer yeah. of the cinemas that you're going to take everyone to go and see. Um, because I think it is still pretty kind of niche. And if you're making, you know, a film about outcasts with your kind of outcast misfit, misfit crew in the same kind of sense that Henry Selleck and Tim Burton were making Nightmare Before Christmas, then you're not necessarily going to appeal to everybody commercially. I've, like, I find that kind of, I think like going forward with Leica is something that I think is a bit of a difficult spot that they're in. Um, and this, it doesn't mean that their films are like not enjoyable or like not good because they're like artistically amazing. But that kind of, yeah, aim to be like commercially successful that Travis Knight is talking about, I don't think is necessarily like how this film came off. Mm. Well, and like they struck, it was lightning in a bottle with Coraline where you do have that outsider thing that is incredibly beautiful that is beloved by critics that makes loads of money and mm. looking ahead to the future of Leica films that we we don't hit that again mm. and mm. they will they feel like maybe they're constant rather than trying to go back to go back to formula um <laughs> they uh they want to go and kind of prove themselves without Selick maybe mm. and it's like that they brought in this legend to set them up that like they can lay a foundation from the studio and rather than build on a Selic identity, they want to craft something for themselves. Credit to them. That's, that's great for them to do that. It's just unfortunate that if you start with one of the best to ever do it and you're then trying to get to that high, it's very, very hard to reach. It, it, it strikes me this i'll flash back to maybe a very grumpy thing that we've talked about in previous episodes where Hayao miyazaki has talked about this younger generation who all they well, all they know is anime and he says you know that's why he doesn't like anime he doesn't like anime fans because anime became this all-encompassing worldview and sensibility so that you only then had filmmakers responding to the art form rather than his generation who would go and read literature and be po be political and all this other stuff. I feel that is the strongest shift for me, and it's almost from the very first frame. Henry Selleck is definitely of the spooky kids generation. He was brought up on Ray Harryhausen and late night horror films and all this stuff, but he would never do something as straightforward as, here is a cheesy old horror film in my film. Mm -hmm. he'd, he'd, he, the, way, the way he would do it would be he would have homages to different forms of animation where you're like, wow, that cutout sequence is incredible, or wow, that whole sequence that looks like it's uh, an Edward Gorey drawing of, um, uh, of of a surrealist short story or whatever. It, he, he, that's, that is his co composite worldview, whereas the approach to horror and a lot of the tropes in this film are sort of gags and Easter eggs and references, similarly, actually, to Wreck-It Ralph, mm. a similar film of the same year, where... Um, it just it feels like the people behind this have just grown up on these films and they love the films and for them it's more a case of whereas let's say Henry Selleck had in Coraline lots of first person shots which may be a reference to Halloween landmark horror film with lots of first person point of view shots tracking through houses in this one they'll have a kid with a phone who has 
the Halloween theme as his ringtone. It's a very different marked shift and pushes it more into that commercial territory. And I, I, I think this is a very fun film, um, re- a really well-made film, but it does almost, almost immediately, and we, this is what's great about watching these films in sequence and we're sort of collapsing 30 years of history into the space of eight episodes. Um, it feels very quickly like the sort of film you could probably get from any other studio at this point in terms of its tone. Oh yeah, t- tonally for sure, and I, I think they kind of lay lay out their goals with it from before the first frame of animation is when you see the title card and they they designed it in kind of boxy framing and old style fonts to fit to look like a B movie to look like a seventies horror, um, and that is saying in a way to your audience think of this film like you might think of those like this don't go into this thinking this is high art this isn't Coraline like we're we're showing you from the very first moment that this is cheap and fun even if it's not cheap and not a huge amount of fun but like to like to give you a gauge for your expectations going into it um which I actually thought was quite smart and so I like it kind of felt assured going into this like oh like you don't need to be kind of freeze framing this all the time and overthinking it um you certainly could um but it was quite refreshing um as well just to have something so breezy um and not so obsessed and we I will talk we mentioned this about maybe fantastic mr fox or wes anderson approach where you've got to be appreciating everything that's in the frame all the time um that's funny because I had the opposite. Oh, really? Reaction to it. I like. I think this is a similar thing to when we talked about um, the Mitchells versus the Machines with um, Mike Rianda. Um, you just want to pause every single shot, like wide shot of the house, of the town, of like all the surroundings, because there's so much like stuffed in there. And I think, um, like you're saying, Michael, like this is you know it's not necessarily referencing old older kind of techniques of animation but it is referencing pop culture like all the time um and like so much of that visually is just in there and you just want to like like pause on norman's bedroom and just like look around the room and see what like kind of little jokes and things they've stuffed in there um my galaxy brain take is that this is creepy gilmore girls oh because i i I always hear it as stars hollow Yeah, because it's, yeah, you know, the Blythe Hollow, Stars Hollow, you're in like a New England, tiny town, everybody knows each other. You have those like, I think, I think they've like nailed Norman as a kid at that time because it is like the constant pop culture references and like the way that maybe, you know, an 11 year old will engage with something they like is by just referencing like everything, like having the the ringtone theme or like his friend running around with the little um jason hockey mask and and that kind of stuff um but also alex borstein is in this as a voice of the drama teacher and she's in gilmore girls so that's my who's who's luke uh the uncle that's in he's in gingham all the not um, he's in flannel he's running around yeah, yeah, he's a bit weird. He's a bit of an outcast. That's yeah. There you go. Yeah. Um, 
I like it. But yeah, no, I do think that the kind of, it is definitely like lighter in tone. And um, I think, yeah, I guess, like you said, Jake, less kind of obsessed with the kind of the high art of it all. But I think there is like so much visually in there to look at and enjoy and oh yeah like um, should, go should back and just, just have a roll on. call of visuals that are uh, that you found arresting because there's there's so much stuff that i thought was that really fits this film and is still and is totally unique as well like i really love the monsters made out of toilet roll it's like that is absolutely perfect for an 11 year old horror film that of course you would you, you like toilet roll is a, a thing that you always use at halloween to turn into a mummy or throw out houses or whatever and we'll make a we'll make a spooky monster out of toilet roll but the way that the toilet roll moves in the air is amazing um and so they they are really kind of having fun with what to do in this world um yeah what what are the bits came to mind for you that you think oh, that they that is really good I liked actually in the the bathroom scene where he's visited by the ghost of his uncle who comes up through the toilet. Um, Just before that, the tiles on the wall start kind of rippling, Mm. um, which I thought was like such an amazing effect. And just one actual um, piece of movement that's like really every day that I just really enjoyed was um, Norman cleaning his locker. So he gets to school and somebody's written like freak on his locker and he kind of sighs and like gets a little spray can and um and kind of cloth out of his locker and then he's kind of reaching up on his tiptoes to spray the can and wipe it and it's just such a smooth and realistic piece of animation for something that is so normal in a film where you know he's jumping off of bits of pavement that are flying in the air and there's a witch in the sky and there's zombies moving it's such a kind of small everyday action um that really kind of blew me away in a weird way i mean we've talked on this podcast series already about like how do you make a worm move like a Mm. a real thing um but i don't think we've fully talked about just how human all of the characters actually yeah. move it's like these these little micro movements and conversations hit like i think there's an evolution in this film um i think Coraline is is stunning um but it's kind of hermetically sealed within its weird little world um and you never feel like that's our world i think this does position itself as more like our world and the way that characters move are more like us um like the the two that so paranorman and his his friend with the curly hair shout out to all the hair in the film hair is amazing like the flat top the curls the norman's hair that looks like a tree that's been cut in half um but the way that kids move like there's a bit where is he called neil the friend yeah yeah the the kind of slightly shy but excited kids will take one arm and like awkwardly like hold the elbow of their other arm and have a little wobble and it's like you didn't need to put that in they can just stand there but that real focus on like how do kids move if they're feeling these emotions at this time and like just the whole conversation that they have in his back garden when they're throwing a stick to an invisible dog and there's all these these ums and ahs and this swaying and it feels like very kind of authentically lived movement for 3d printed (laughs) tiny little creatures 
And I, I suppose that brings up something we could go into a bit, a bit more depth about the craft behind us, because for me there is that tension between um, the increasing potential of what stop motion can do in with the, all these three D printed puppets, the the increasing use of CG to sort of clean up or to create the environments around them, um, but. And the design, and I, 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 there are elements of the design in this that I do love. The character designs are so, um, at times, caricatured and grotesque, but they all do exist in the same world. And you, you, it's the sort of thing where it's only really when you see them stood in a lineup that you realise how weird the character mm. designs are. And the thing that struck me this time, which I just, just so delightful, I loved the design of the family car that you see at the end because it's, <laughs> um, it's. The, you know, the, the the family dynamic is the dad is this sort of big bloke and the, there's a sort of stick thin mum and when they're sat side by side in the car the, the roof is actually slanted uh, <laughs> to show it's sort of like that um, size dynamic in the relationship just those those, those sort of gentle um, slightly grotesque caricaturing in the designs are really delightful but let's talk about that craft then because um Akira Kurosawa, as we've quoted on this podcast, has said that you know Miyazaki's such a good animator, he should make a live-action film someday. And that's always the spectre hanging over animators. You know, that animation is somehow subservient to live-action. But for this, is it's, why is this in stop motion when it could be in another form? Mm-hmm. Does it does it have a reason to be in stop motion? I think that's a good question. It would certainly be a cheaper story to tell in live action um, because schlocky 70s horror, there was so much of it because it was the cheapest thing to be made. Um, so it is a quite, quite strange to then do uh, an, an homage to that in what is probably the most expensive thing to be making it in. Um, but then also the question with why animation is also why not? Uh <laughs> but then also why yeah. this form of animation something that really strikes me particularly in the opening scenes when you have what could be ripped out of the establishing scenes of any other animated film or any other sort of live action coming of age movie of the kid on the walk to school all those tracking shots through streets and the camera placement the sort of the tracking his feet and then opening up on these um sets of streets and crossings and the the, the high streets and everything um you, I really felt that um, shift from somebody who, like Henry Selick, is used to using smaller sets and getting the most out of them, to somebody who's worked in as um, as Sam Fell had worked in CG, where you create these larger environments and you can move in a full environment and mimic a live action camera in that way, and it really was a, was marked for me. And I don't know why it's this is always purely emotional and personal and subjective right where you think that that seems like it could yeah that's a different sort of film um but the the, let's talk about that then in terms of the environments they create because as you said Coraline exists in its own hermetically sealed world it does have almost a a rim of uh fog around it where if you walk away from the mansion you go into uh, this uh, white negative world. It does have a, see- a scene in the shops at the local town, but this is one where it feels like they build a whole town, right? That's a big change in the scale. Yeah, and, and I think the building that wider world kind of answers the your question about why is it being in this, why are you doing it in this form? Because 
I think the issue if you have a low budget horror um, will be when you want to get to your villains and you want to get to your monsters. If you're shooting everything without not much money in the real world, it all kind of looks like our world. And then you throw something in that's not of our world. It looks alien and probably cheap and your suspension of disbelief goes because you've shown us a thing that doesn't exist. And they've spent so much time here building out that world and the visual language of that world, the geography of it. So we can kind of imagine what goes down this street and that street and it all looks a certain way. So when you do introduce these like incredible, the cloud spirits in the woods, which I have no idea how they're doing them. It's just like astonishing work. They feel at home in this world because of everything that they set up in the regular non-mystical version of it i think short of you know netflix making a stranger things paranormal spin-off <laughs> it's just not something that would still have the same kind of magical element mm. in live action mm. the the answer now and this again this is we're getting to this um sentimental thing i guess and maybe it's maybe it could be generational maybe it's just sort of what films you like growing up so the answer to that question, Jake, of how they did it is almost always VFX now. Mm. It used to be some crazy trick where it's actually popcorn that's been painted in this way or they just got really tiny you know, needles to knit or some, something. Now they're using so much VFX in here, which is, means they can do things they've never done before. Um, but for some of us who are maybe are purists or maybe we are sentimental, as I say, tied to this idea that stop motion is a form that should have necessary boundaries and to innovate within them is what the magic is. Um, this is where, in some ways, the most magical moment of this film in terms of the craft is in the closing credits. And this is this might be something we come back to with the rest of the Leica films where they pull back the curtain in the closing credits and you see the craft. In this one, it's showing a Norman puppet from like design to mold to pouring the mold to then you know the, the individual bits of painting and dressing. And... It, it goes back to me, something I don't think we mentioned in the Coraline episode, where um, because these faces, these 3D printed faces, have all of these individual parts, they have there are natural sort of seams and cracks between them. Um, you mentioned Anomalisa, Jake. That's a film that shows those cracks, the way it doesn't. It looks like they're um, they're fake faces. Um, Henry Selick in Coraline, I think he said he wanted to keep those in to show that they weren't real. And he was, I think, overruled by maybe Travis and I think maybe even Phil Knight saying, no, we should digitally erase them to make them seem more lifelike and real. And it feels like I think the Leica project is to create this perfectly designed and realised world where you don't, where you forget you're watching stop motion. Yes, but you don't have the equivalent of Ardman where you're looking at thumbprints in every frame yeah mm. i think that is something interesting to keep an eye on as we go along because um i feel like with some of the later films almost the only way you know it's stop motion is those like post-credit sequence where they show you how they've done it um and then i guess yeah that does raise the question like why why spend a year making a film in this way if you're not going to see how it's done mm like on the screen if you don't have those kind of like handmade elements very present but i think you still get it in this one i think with the the kind of 
designs of the the buildings and you know everything's like a little bit wonky and all the characters kind of look like a toothpaste tube that's been squeezed in certain areas like I think you still get that handmade element but they're definitely like teetering on the the edge of it just being so perfect and we'll 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 talk about Fantastic Mr Fox on a, a patron episode but that's one where you know Wes Anderson wanted to keep that roughness Mm. in there i'd also compare it with um when tim burton returns to stop motion that's a bit too clean at times as well um, but again it's it's a, it's a sentimental attachment but also i think part of what henry Selick views animation as which is animation should call attention to its craft in order to inspire the people you know he's in his films he's always cramming in somebody even within the film doing some craft of their own um to to make it even more meta um, rather than just creating an animated film where you can still get a sense of that craft, but really you should probably go and pick up the making of art book to get a sense of that real craft. Because this is there's some amazing artists involved in this, you know, as there has been on every film so far. One person we should shout out that we've had on this podcast in the past was Ross Stewart, um, who had worked on Secrets of Kells and Song of the Sea and then moved over to Leica to do concept art. Um, before going back to Cartoon Saloon for Wolfwalkers. And do you, do you see maybe a Ross Stewart vibe at any point in this film? A, a, a Cartoon Saloon-y vibe in any scenes, Jake? Oh, yeah, definitely. I think the um, descending into the woods where you find a youthful, white, glowing f- female character who seems to be from a folktale, uh, that's, that's an extremely Cartoon Saloon thing. And even, even the design of the witch... Um, when she's in her kind of white glowing Mr. Burns alien uh, phase <laughs> is extremely Kells. It's, it's, well, I think you've essentially got a character like that in all of the folklore trilogy from Cartoon Saloon. Um, that kind of mythic, ethereal, um, sprite-like figure in, in the woodland. Um, and if you go over to Ross Stewart's website, rossstewart.net, and we'll post these on our Twitter as well. You can see his early concept art for that, um, for that character. And you, you you might as well just copy and paste it over to the lookbook for Secret of Kells. Um, you, can, you can really see it in there. And so it's really interesting to see from that what a cartoon saloon stop motion film could look like too. Um, but just, yeah, just thinking of, of The Witch and that, that obviously that's our, the finale of the film like moving away from the craft of this thing and how it's been made what do you actually think of the story um and the the characters within it and and its message what message does it have steph so norman has these kind of um visions omens where he's kind of transported back to um kind of early um, New England, uh, where kind of witch trials are going on. Um, and I think as that unravels, I think you get a really um, powerful moment where they realise that the witch is actually just like a child and not this kind of scary, uh, ugly kind of monster that they've immortalised as a town statue. Um I think it's not as like black and white as we might think it is because you have a lot of um, discussion about kind of forgiveness for mm. the people who actually 
um decided to to kind of have her killed um it's a, it's a kids it's film a bit... about forgiving people for child murdering i think this is like where i yeah don't see it as maybe for kids it's, i think the message I, I appreciate it for not being like you know be kind to everyone and like that kind of very basic message that it could very easily come off with because i think you have um kind of three three or four points of view that all kind of converge on that final um scene and like whatever the lesson is from it um i think it's very interesting as like a film about tolerance and how far uh we have come or have not come in like 300 years um that it kind of like goes in in cycles um and people are still kind of reactionary and act out of fear and uh it's not right but people do it anyway um i think it, i was quite surprised about that element of it it has to pull off a couple of really tricky moves because it's probably presuming that kids watching this know witches and maybe know the history of american witches and witch trials and everything like that um that iconography but then it has to then probably teach them a little bit about how it actually was this abuse of power this mob mentality often um you know victimizing young women and all these other things as scapegoats but then it has to then make another turn where you have zombies are scary but then the zombies are revealed to not be scary and it has this sense of bullying all the way throughout as well. And it ends with this young girl who was in some ways bullied by the ultimate bullies, which were the puritanical Americans of the, <laughs> of, the of, of, of early American history. Um, which I think, as Jake said, it sort of lands into this sort of tricky territory of either seeking to forgive the... Um, the, the that those abusive people in power or showing them to be a figure of fun so when the, when it's finally revealed to, that the zombies are you know not actually the scary thing they're, they're and they're powerless it's mixing up probably one of the most sort of uh, you know historic abusive power structures within white america white american history with schoolyard bullies which is very simplified, maybe. Maybe too simplified for this story. But it, the actual very ending, which reminds me a bit of, um, gosh, everything from Turning Red to Boy and the Beast. The idea of it all hinges on this very anime thing of like a young kid with powers they can't control and having to somehow appeal to the innocence and the friendship at the heart of that and, 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 and reach out to them. Um, I thought that sequence works really well at the end. But it does have quite a facile overall point of uh, don't judge people by by their reputation or how they look or a book by its cover. Be kind and be tolerant, which um, maybe doesn't seem so sophisticated, maybe. Yeah. Jake, what did you think? So you've hinted a little bit there about forgiving, forgiving the Puritans. Yeah, yeah I think um, I think it structurally i don't think it's like its rhythms are totally um totally enjoyable i think perhaps like a a horror film it suffers from uh kind of being a bit drab at the start as it starts to kind of put all its chess pieces out and so i think the first 25 to 30 minutes of the film aren't particularly fascinating um or entertaining 
I think it's like it's perfectly nice. Um, but I think with Coraline, which is a film in which, again, not a huge amount happens at the start because that world is so fascinating and so different. That's what kind of carries you through it because this world is like it's fun. But as I said, it's quite it's not like so far away from our own. You don't feel propelled through it just because of the um, the open top bus tour through the world. Um, and then I think the, the middle is where it gets a bit confused and that's where there's too much thrown at it. And so you get like you've got to assemble, you bring in all the characters and they're all quite, quite shouty and have their own dynamics. And then you've got the stuff that's happening in the past. You've got the stuff that's happening in the present. You're flipping between the past and the present. I should say the scene transitions between the past and present are amazing yeah. um like really really clever stuff um and so it's that middle bit where it's just like it's throwing too much at the wall and then when it does it, it if you could strip that back a bit more and focus on that relationship between him and the witch and maybe get rid of kind of the tertiary a few of the tertiary characters and dramas i think you'd maybe get a bit more emotion in that back back end as well mm. um because yeah, I, I didn't feel like that emotionally attached to it much that was going on. Um, in a way, I felt that more than the, the film about tolerance, this was a film about creativity. Mm. And um, what I found, what I could see in, in Norman was the thing that so many, so many people have, whatever form they're working in, which is this idea of seeing a thing in your head so clearly and trying to get other people to understand it and see it themselves. And in a way that is, well, that, that's filmmaking too. And this whole drama that you've got to go through is just to try and get people to understand a thing. And obviously that doesn't have to be art. That can be anything. It's just anyone feeling any feeling. Um, but it was, to me, that's where, particularly as the finale of the film revolves around essentially someone telling a once upon a time story this was about trying to get that story that you can see and get other people to see it with you yeah it's it's, it's just it's on the cusp of something i think mm. i think that it also falls down where they rely a little bit on tropes of the genre so they've decided it's going to be a coming of age film with a kid in a, in a school is like their um their focus and it's something that really rubbed me up the wrong way growing up where um there'd be the sort of waspy um able-bodied middle-class white kid as the main character and then they'd have an overweight friend and then probably a sort of maybe ethnically ambiguous friend with braces and glasses as their other friend um and it's it's it, it, it that that world of milieu is just sort of copied and pasted from so many other tv shows mm -hmm. and films there um where uh it's it's adding those things in for a sake of sort of character diversity maybe but um it, it it's feeding into cliches too lots of fun stuff though like oh. um where, where are the police <clears throat> and then a police person <laughs> immediately slams into someone's face uh using a the sign for crime prevention seminar to break into a building <laughs> it's just lots of, <clears throat> lots of little good stuff um this is also the amazing line where the policewoman says, uh, stop shooting the civilians. That's for the police to do. <laughs> yeah. Great line. It's a, it's a very slapsticky film. Don't make me throw this hummus. It's spicy. <laughs> it's the most slapsticky film we've done on here other than Monkey Bone. Yeah. 
Um, on that note, where does it rank next to Monkey Bone? Absolutely. Let's see where it goes into the top motion table. Okay, let's put this into our top motion table. Steph, I'll come to you first. Okay, well, so at the moment, we have Coraline in first for me, The Nightmare Before Christmas, Monkey Bone, and then James and the Giant Peach. Um, I know I was supporting Monkey Bone, but I think this will have to go just above it. Um, but not very close, to be honest. Like, I think out of those two, I would rewatch both of them. And uh, so I think it's sitting just about third for me. Um, Jake? Yeah, for me, so it's yeah, mo- Monkey Bone at the bottom. Then... Um, I've I've said this before. Like I feel like Nightmare Before Christmas. Maybe in twenty years' time, when I've watched it loads of times, I'll really love it. But then it's probably Nightmare Before Christmas. Then this, then James and the Giant Peach, then Coraline. Yes. So, despite everything I just said in the review section, I really like the thing. Is, I like this film a lot. I think it's a very solid and entertaining film, and the craft is off the charts. Even if maybe it's going down a, a route in the craft that um, uh, is straying away from what I enjoy in these films when we bunch them all together, so I'd probably put it on level pegging with James. So it would be maybe slightly edging ahead because I think this is a bit more of a complete film for me than James. So it'll go Monkey Bone Bottom, James, then Paranorman, Nightmare Before Christmas, Coraline still top for me. Ah. Oh. The iconography is in full effect. <laughs> Next week we have the box trolls. We'll see where they land. Until then, keep up with us on social media. We are Ghibliatech on Twitter, ghibliatech.pod on Instagram. Come follow us on Patreon for the ad-free episodes, footnotes from all of the research I do for the context, and uh, bonus episodes as well. We're going to be talking about The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou, uh, which features animation from Henry Selick in that period between Monkey Bone and Coraline. We're also all on Twitter individually. You can follow Steph at underscore Steph Watts. You can follow Jake at JKH Cunningham. And you can follow Michael at Michael J Leader. But of course, before we go, we'd like to shout out a thanks to our recent Patreon subscribers. I'll run through these names now. Thank you to Gage Kushner, to Nathan, and to Daniel Webb. Go and check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash Attack. We also have a Discord where we are talking about all sorts of things, including shouting out Jake for getting Simpsons episodes wrong <laughs> on episodes that we recorded. I have been ago. humbled. <laughs> <laughs> uh, can, can you hazard a guess at the name of the uh, title of the episode with Mr. Burns as the alien? Oh, no. I, I, I really couldn't. Um, but please hop on Discord. T- tell me what the name of that episode is that famous simpsons episode called i bring you love (laughs) (laughs) we'll be back next episode with box trolls thanks for listening Ghibliotech is produced by michael leader jake cunningham harold mcshill and steph watts our music is by anthony ying
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.